Good morning, everyone. Our scripture text uh, today uh, is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 24, verses 12 to chapter 25, up to verse 9. So please bear with me as I read the word of God. The Lord said to Moses, Come up, unto me, come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commands I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joseph, or Joshua, his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the clouds as he went on up the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering you are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts, with, to, uh, prompt, prompts him to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ramskins dyed red, and hides of sea cows, acacia wood, olive oil, for the lights, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Uh, then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishing exactly like the pattern I will show you. This is the word of God. Please pray with me. Father God, we praise your name because you're patient, loving, and caring, God. Your word says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was uh, sown along the path, oh Lord. Father God, I, I'm praying that you would not let this be us, O oh Lord your people here at Bethesda Church. I rebuke the enemy and his cohorts, O God, in Jesus' name. May the Holy Spirit protect the word that will be sound in our hearts as we, as he guard, uh, as he, Lord God, hallelujah. May he guard you, uh, this, O Lord God, so that the devil cannot come to snatch it away in our hearts. Father, as I read and received your, as we read and received your word, may it be deeply rooted within us, O oh God, so that when difficulties comes, it will be your words that encourages and strengthen us. Father God, help us not to fall away when tribulation comes, but instead may we be steady and encored, anchored in your uh, in you, O oh Lord God. King Jesus, give us the grace to be strong so that the word that's in our hearts, O oh God, will be uh, 
will be not choke, O God, will be not be choke, O God, by, by the snares of this world. Help us, Lord, so that we will not be uh, drawn to the sub superficial pleasure and the lights of this world. Father God, I pray that we may be the type of believers, especially here at Peterson Church, O oh God, who hears the word and understand it. Help us to be a believer who bears fruit, O oh God, because your word has been sown on good soil. Lord God, I pray that you will make us a people and children of integrity. May we be men and women who not only say the name of Jesus Christ, but may, may we be found to be following and obeying Jesus Christ, practicing your commandments and your teachings. Lord, as your word says in James 1, uh, 20 to 25, I pray, Father God, that we will be a pray, uh, that we will be uh, a people of God who does more than just uh, uh, we declare our faith, O oh Lord. Holy Spirit, help us to be one who puts into practice, O oh Lord. Help us, Lord Jesus, to live according to your words. We want to live life which is governed by your word, O oh God, a life that is ruled by your word. Lord, I understand that you do not want those who merely hear the word, but freely choose to disobey the word. I pray that we may be one who is moved by your word. May we be moved to repent as we re read your word, O Lord. May we be moved to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness above all else. Father, Father God, help us to stay tuned with your word as we also listen to your servant Yuri as he preaches and conveys your message to us, O God, today. And I pray, O oh God, for your double portion of anointing on him, O oh God, so that as he speaks and preaches, O oh God, he speaks and preaches, O oh God, with authority and power to convict us, O oh God, to change us, O oh Lord God, for our benefits and for your glory. Thank you, Father God. I believe, O oh God, this will happen to us today, O oh God, because this is your will. And I thank you and glorify you, O oh God, for always listening and answering our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Not bad after three strokes and two heart attacks. Three. Three heart attacks. Three heart attacks, two strokes. Three strokes, three heart attacks. Three and three. Yeah, we don't want to. We're so glad to have George back and have George with us. Um, we had our first elder meeting in a long time with him this past Tuesday, and he promptly was elected elder chairman. And uh, uh, we're just so thankful to have him. So let me, uh, let me pray for him and for his family as we continue on. Lord, thank you for George. Thank you for his faith, for his ministry among us, for his friendship, for his persevering faith, for his uh, hope in you uh, that uh, you demonstrate to us uh, is um, uh, necessary and is um, uh, helpful to others. We pray your blessing upon him, his health, his wife Lori, uh, their children, and we pray, Lord, that you would continue to sustain him all the rest of his days. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Yeah, I would just uh, concur wholeheartedly with what um, Mark was just saying. Our elder meeting on Tuesday night was really blessed by the presence of George. He really helps us to focus on the important things. 
the word as you heard him praying, that we would be a people of the word, that we would be a people of prayer. And that's what this um, meeting we talked about on Thursday morning is going to be about, that we would, as the men of Bethesda Church, take up our responsibility to be the prayer leaders of our congregation. And what we do on Sunday mornings, praising God with his people assembled. These these three things are the core of our practice, of our faith. Because we believe that God lives inside of us. We talk about this in kind of glib terms a lot. But I wonder, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that God is here? Do you believe that he has a plan to use little Bethesda Church? To use you? And would you believe that what we are doing right now is the main part of that plan to use us? Well, as Mark said, this morning we're making a return to your questions, the ones that we asked you to submit and which we started to answer back in July. What is the relationship of the tabernacle to the church? This was the question that I selected when Mark and I met back in the spring, one of them. And I have to admit that when I first read this question, it didn't really appeal to me because it seemed like I had just spent a lot of time on a similar topic, not too much before that. If you're with us in June, you may remember that I preached a series of four messages on the little book of Haggai, which deals with the rebuilding of the temple. And in that series, I was trying my very best to make clear the relationship between the temple and the church. So today's question came out of that context. And the person asking the question wanted to know, is the relationship between the tabernacle and the church exactly the same as the relationship between the temple and the church? As I said, the question didn't at first capture my interest. Since there is a lot of overlap in form and function between the temple and the tabernacle, I just I thought I would be just repeating myself. But as I've dug into what the Bible has to say about the tabernacle, I've been astonished. The riches there are to discover about it are almost inexhaustible, and they could fill many sermons. And also, I've been surprised at how ignorant I was of something that's so completely familiar to me, but which I've never really taken the time to think deeply about. Of course, after a lifetime of going to church, I know a lot about the tabernacle. I've read the Exodus account many times, and I grew up in Sunday school. I saw the amazing models that people are able to make of the tabernacle because of the detailed instructions that God gave to Moses on the mountain starting with that passage that George just read for us. And not to mention the fact that we read about the, we get all that material repeated, all those instructions as the people carried them out, faithful in the tiniest detail, all the way to the end of the book of Exodus. 
But maybe you're like me, you've mostly dreaded reading the last 15 chapters of Exodus. Since it's really the first place that the Bible feels like it kind of bogs down. The 50 chapters of Genesis are a thrilling ride of stories that speed us along through hundreds, even thousands of years of history. The beginning of Exodus is no different. If you blink, you might miss the fact that the first chapter spans centuries. Centuries in which the once proud people of Israel become practically mindless slaves. And their God and all his promises fade to little more than a distant memory. And then there's the second chapter that skims and samples only the most important moments of Moses' first 80 years. And then we slow down, but it's only to tell of Moses' dramatic encounter with the nearly forgotten God of Israel. And that's followed by a suspense-filled showdown designed to display who really runs the planet. Unflappable Pharaoh, the untouchable ruler of the world's leading superpower, or some barbarian tribe's desert god who no one seemed to have ever even heard of and who frankly sounded kind of made up. I mean, I am who I am? What is that? Well, we all know the end of that story, and whatever, whatever else it may be, it's certainly not boring. Finally, in chapter 19, the people of God get to their destination. They get to do what their God, Yahweh, commanded Pharaoh to let them do. The thing that Pharaoh thought was completely crazy and refused to do. Remember, God said, let my people go. Why? That they may serve me in the wilderness. So this is the payoff of the whole book when we get to chapter 19. This is what the whole fight with Pharaoh was about. And at first, it's great reading. It's got, it's got everything, melodrama, excitement, longing, terror. There's this foreboding mountain, impressive in its sheer desolation. There's a covenant made, impossible in its sheer hope. There's thunder and lightning. There's clouds and an earthquake. There's consuming fire and billowing smoke and a majestic trumpet call that lasts forever. It just gets louder and louder and louder. And then so unimaginably powerful that the people thought they would die if they heard too much of it. The mighty voice of God uttering the Ten Commandments. And then there's brave Moses approaching the thick darkness where God was in chapter 20. After that, the puzzling laws that God gives to him then, they certainly hold our interest. And that curiosity sustains us until the moment when, as the elders of Israel feast with their covenant king, he reveals to them a glimpse of his indescribable beauty beauty as of a, a pavement of sparkling sapphire or lapis lazuli, where before there was only all-consuming fire. And then, as George read to us, the moment of greatest 
suspense. God calls Moses up to the summit. He disappears into the smoke for weeks. The high pitch of excitement gradually falls. The people who were so eager grow despondent, complacent. I've come to think that this exaggerated, slow tempo is intentional. A stroke of literary and spiritual genius. It's literary genius because as we read the next few chapters, we actually feel the irritation and impatience that the people must have felt as they twiddled their thumbs for 40 days and 40 nights at the foot of the mountain. It's spiritual genius because our reaction to it, as the Bible so often does, reveals to us the state of our hearts. Our reaction diagnoses our spiritual condition. Will we skim impatiently to get to the good part, the part with the golden calf and the violence? Or will we allow ourselves to slow down, content to sit with God at the top of the mountain? Well, I've taken precious time to summarize the whole book of Exodus for you, but I've done it for a good reason. And that's to highlight that the biggest difference between the tabernacle and the temple is its story. The story of how the tabernacle came to be. That is the context we find it in. The tabernacle's story is unique, totally different from the story of the temple. But the main purpose of the temple and tabernacle was basically identical. Look in verse 9 of chapter 25, which George read for us a few minutes ago. God wanted his people to make a sanctuary for him. That is, a place that's holy, set apart. He wanted them to set apart and consecrate a cube of air so that he, the everlasting inferno of perfection and beauty, could be personally, physically present with his sinful, not to mention flammable, people without burning them up. Just as we learned when we studied the book of Haggai, in the temple, this consecrated space was a living space, an earthly dwelling for God. But because God could never be contained, we would be better off emphasizing that it was a living space. That is, a space that crackled with life. It was a small room. It had no windows. Yet it was a room that, as C.S. Lewis might have said, was bigger on the inside than it was on the outside. It looked out onto eternity. That little square room was the heart, both of the tabernacle and of the temple. Apart from that little room called the Holy of Holies, which contained the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle and the temple 
proper, each had only one other enclosed room called the holy place, the table and a lampstand and an altar for burning incense. And surrounding those enclosed spaces, they each had an open-air court. They each had an altar. They each had a large basin for washing in. They each had priests who did the same sorts of things. They each had a gate that faced to the east. So in terms of what they were for and how they were laid out, the tabernacle and the temple were the same. But the story... The story of the tabernacle is, as I said, totally different. And what we've talked about so far is only the beginning, because as I've said, everything in Exodus leading up to this point has been building to this moment. Moses vanishing into the smoke. It's easy for those of us who know what happened next and who know the rest of the Bible to forget that the Israelites did not know. Or maybe it's better to say that they could not have been expecting what actually came next. Not even Moses could have expected that he was going to be given instructions to build a tabernacle. They had, Moses himself had only been told that one, they were to be freed from bondage, Two, that they were going to go and worship God at his holy mountain. And three, that God would lead them to the promised land. As far as they could tell, stages one and two were complete. They were free. They had worshipped God. He had even made a new covenant with them. They had sealed the deal with a feast. All that remained was the paperwork, so to speak. And then they'd be on their way to the land of milk and honey. That's what they expected Moses to bring back. That's what God explicitly told Moses to come up and collect from him. And then Moses was just gone. Gone, gone. Or so it seemed. But the mystery on the mountain is the climax, the point of the whole book. Well, let's look at our text, chapter 25. First, we read in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses. That is, in the Hebrew original, Yahweh said to Moses. Yahweh spoke. And because that phrase is so common in this book, it's not the first or the last time that we'll read it, It's really easy to just kind of pass over it quickly. But that would be to miss something important. More than a journey, or even freedom from slavery, Exodus is about names. Exodus is about names. The first words of the book are, these are the names. And that's how the book is known in Hebrew, shemot, names. And one of the especially satisfying subversions of Exodus is that it is the rich and the powerful, people who typically never care to know the names of those they oppress, who are the ones who remain nameless in this book. Pharaoh is not a name, but a title, like Caesar or Fuhrer. 
No, in Exodus, it's only the humble, only those who fear God who are named. They're often the the servants, people with obscure, hard-to-pronounce names, people like Shifra and Pua, the midwives who defied Pharaoh by refusing his order to kill any Hebrew babies, or Bezalel and Oholiab, former slaves who God filled with his spirit so that they would have the artistry they would need to build his holy tent, along with the ability to teach others to help them. But God did much more than dignify and enslaved people by recording their names. In chapter 3, we read about how he revealed to them his own name. This doesn't really mean that he taught them the proper syllables, although it's possible that they had forgotten them. No, in revealing his name to his people and to the world, God was showing them his divine attributes. I would go even further and assert that the Exodus event itself, the burning bush, the plagues, the splitting of the sea, the desert provisions, warfare and wanderings, all this was about God making his name, his character known abroad. It's not just for Israel's benefit, but for the benefit of the whole world that God acts for Israel, as we've been learning these last few weeks. It is as he acts for his people and through his people that he declares his sovereignty over all of humanity and all of nature. Just turn back with me for a moment to chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. Chapter 9, verses 15 and 16 of Exodus. Here we're in in between the plagues of boils and hail. And the Lord Yahweh spells out his judgment and his mercy to the arrogant. He says to Pharaoh, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you with a plague that would have wiped you off the face of the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And we have to note that some of the Egyptian officials actually listened. They actually took God's threat seriously. They saved themselves and their livestock from the hail. Not only that, In chapter 12, we're told that many others, that is, many Gentiles, likely Egyptian, and maybe from other places, joined themselves to Israel and her God as they escaped out of Egypt. That's another story. But we ought not to take for granted that the Lord Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh, spoke to Moses. The first two chapters of the book are full of names, but not his. Those chapters do indeed speak about God, but they do not mention his name, Yahweh, at all. Implying that he had not spoken to his people, had not revealed his power or his goodness to them in any obvious way for hundreds of years. As we have seen What the Lord Yahweh said to Moses could very well have been a surprise to him. Moses was primed to hear about the covenant, not to get a commission. Moses expected to collect a legal brief, not a sheaf of blueprints. 
If you can distance yourself from your familiarity with the story, you can see how odd it must have been for them. Being told to set up an elaborate tent for a god who they had mostly experienced in the pillar of fire and cloud seems to be kind of a strange ask. The Egyptians had permanent temples for their gods, for instance. So did everyone else who was civilized. And as far as I've been able to discover, very few, if any, cultures in history have ever worshipped their gods in something so fragile, so makeshift, so pitiful, really, as a tent. And in terms of walking distance, the journey to the promised land was only a matter of days. So it wouldn't have been unreasonable for them to expect that God would lead them on the next stage of their journey, just as he had led them from the Red Sea, a pillar of fire and cloud leading them right up into the promised land sometime in the coming weeks. Perhaps then he would even ask them to build him a temple. But no. In the middle of their journey, in the middle of a desert, he says... Unpack your treasures. He wants them to give up the gold and the silver that they just received from the Egyptians. He wants them to give the things that were perhaps even more dear to them, beautiful things they maybe had been saving for a long time. Jewelry, precious stones, spices, skins, dyes of blue and purple and scarlet. He wanted their, their everyday practical things. He, he, he wanted their bronze mirrors and their, and their bronze tools. He wanted the goat's hair they used to keep warm on cold desert nights. He, he, he wanted the oil, the oil that was so useful to cook, to light, to protect the skin from dryness and dust. And he wants it scandalously for nothing more than to burn it where no one can benefit from it, to sprinkle it, to, to just pour it out. Also, he wants things that will cost them time and effort. He wants them to break their backs cutting down and hauling and milling the hard desert acacia trees. He wants them to work their fingers to the bone spinning the goat's hair and the wool and the flax. But it's also significant that God says that he wants these things only from those whose heart moves him. Whereas the NIV has it, those whose heart prompts him to give. Well, this phrase raises some questions. How would the Israelites react to such a challenging request? What if no one gives anything? What was the state of their hearts? Now, based on how I restated God's request to Moses just now, obviously, I seem to be suggesting that they would have had a negative reaction, a hardened heart. But it's actually not how I think they would have reacted. It's more how I think we would react if such demands were made of us. I think the Israelites themselves would probably have been much more naturally inclined to give than we are. But we'll never know for sure because something happened when Moses came down from the mountain. 
After weeks of being left to their own devices, the Israelites let their fear that Moses had died or abandoned them get the better of them. Impatient and unwilling to wait on God to reveal the next stage of his plan, they persuaded Moses' brother and spokesman Aaron to do something to make them feel better, to soothe their anxiety and and boost their confidence. Ignoring the first of the Ten Commandments that the very voice of God had thundered only weeks earlier, they convinced Aaron to make them an idol, a golden calf, a God who would go before them. I think this probably reflected a habit they had picked up in Egypt with its plethora of gods. They quickly turned from the God who had actually brought them out of Egypt. He just didn't seem to be helping them anymore. And they started looking for one that worked, for a God who was more congenial, for a God they could approach on their terms. And they enthusiastically donated their jewelry for the project. So it seems that among all their problems, materialism was probably not the problem for them as it is for us. What I mean is, while we are horrified that they would turn from the Lord so quickly, we can't believe they would do that, we probably would have a lot more trouble to allow our hearts to be moved in the first place, to be prompted to give in the first place especially for something that seems as ordinary as worship. But one thing we do know, their repentance of that sin was total and complete. We read later how they gave so much that they had to be told to stop. And at least part of the point of the repetition of the Lord's instructions for the building of the tabernacle in the last few chapters of Exodus is to show the depth of their repentance. That they carried out the Lord's instructions to the letter, demonstrated their commitment to obey him. And just what did they build? Well, verse 9 of chapter 25 makes clear that the tabernacle was intended to be the earthly image of something in heaven that Moses was shown by God himself. Now, I used the word blueprint earlier because of the word pattern, which we find in our text, but actually it was probably more that God, or that Moses was given a vision of God's heavenly sanctuary. In Hebrews 9, we read that the earthly tabernacle was a copy of the heavenly things. Why don't you turn there now, Hebrews 9, on the Pew Bible, that's page 1167. The earthly tabernacle was a copy of the heavenly things, and we're told there, this is starting in verse um, 24, I believe. Christ entered not into holy places made by hands, which are copies of the true things, 
but into heaven itself. Then skipping down a little ways. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In other words, the design of the tabernacle clearly intended to be made of very fragile, perishable, earthly materials somehow reflected an eternal, imperishable, heavenly reality. Biblical scholars have also pointed out that the tabernacle also had many features that seemed to intentionally reflect the Garden of Eden, a time and a place when God lived easily with his people. So as God in his tabernacle roved around the earth in the midst of Israel, God was asserting his sovereignty, not only over Israel, but over the whole world. He made himself known through Israel and through her was deeply engaged in carrying out his plan for the earth's future restoration. Well, I just read a book by Ross Blackburn, an um, Anglican priest in the States. He wrote an excellent book in Exodus called The God Who Makes Himself Known, and he puts it this way. As the Lord rules over Israel from the earthly tabernacle, he likewise rules over the cosmos in the heavenly tabernacle. That the Lord desires to dwell among his people in the tabernacle suggests a restoration of the purpose for which he created humanity. In other words, the tabernacle explicitly deals with the restoration of humanity, the restoration of the creation. Well, we don't know exactly what happened to the tabernacle, but it makes sense that it would have been decommissioned in Solomon's time a few hundred years later when Solomon built the temple. The upgrade to a temple of cedar and stone reflected a different phase in God's story with Israel, when the earthly copy of the heavenly sanctuary could be made of something more durable because they were settled securely in the promised land. And it no longer made sense for God's sanctuary to, to move around. But it's important to say, however, that this is another of the important differences between the tabernacle and the temple. God never asked David or Solomon to build a temple for him. In fact, when David expressed his, his desire to build God a house, God seemed to discourage the idea. At the very least, he made it clear that it was not something he had ever asked for. Nevertheless, he honored David's desire to build him a more permanent dwelling, and he promised to David himself an eternal dynasty, a far more permanent house of his own, a house that would outlast any earthly temple. And Hebrews tells us, the passage we just read, if you have it still open, Hebrews tells us that we, rickety and torn and smudged as an old tent that's been used for an age, we are eagerly awaiting for the eternal king, the heir of David, to reappear from heaven, waiting for our bodies to be remade with heavenly materials 
into something that will last forever. Well, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here because this is actually what we're going to talk about next Sunday in a message I'm calling Heaven's Trumpet. I'll answer another of your questions, which is drawn from the same passage in Hebrews that we just read about death and judgment and about our blessed hope, Jesus' glorious return. So I hope you'll join us next week. But today, I'm using this passage in Hebrews to pivot, that is to finally answer the question we have set before us. So we've talked a lot about the tabernacle this morning, but the question that was asked is, what is the relationship of the tabernacle to the church? Well, as we heard about earlier with the kids, John 1.14 tells what it meant when Jesus appeared the first time. John writes, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's interesting that a couple of chapters later, Jesus also referred to himself as the temple, hinting early at his death and resurrection. Jesus, as the temple, emphasizes his immortality. But the intimation that John makes that the tabernacle foreshadowed God becoming a man emphasizes Jesus' fleshliness. In his tent of human flesh, God could be touched. God could even be hurt. And God could move in and among his sinful and broken people wholly, yet without hurting them. In his tent, he was God tactile, God fragile, God mobile. Since both Peter and Paul in the New Testament also refer to their bodies as a tent, it seems that the apostles made much of this connection in order to imitate Jesus by being physically present with his people, to join with Jesus in his mission to them, to identify personally with Jesus in his suffering. Through his sacrifice on the cross, Jesus satisfied God's justice and not only made mercy available to us, he purified us, making it possible for God's spirit to dwell in us. That means that theoretically we could either be called a temple or a tabernacle. But it's interesting to note that while the New Testament generally refers to us corporately, that is, the gathered ones, the church, as the temple of the living God, it only rarely identifies individuals as such. But on the other hand, it talks about individuals as tents, or in the case of Jesus, as a tabernacle. Nowhere does it refer to the assembly as a tabernacle. So it seems that when we think of ourselves as a temple, like Jesus, we're emphasizing our immortal destiny, our eternal hope, And that's a wonderful thought. But we would do well if each of us thought of ourselves more often as tense, tactile, mobile, and fragile. That is, touchable and touching, mobile and mobilized. 
prone to wearing out and breaking, yet for that very reason filled with longing to be clothed with eternity. We would do well if we listened to the voice of the Lord as he has spoken in his word. First to Moses and to the prophets, then through his son and his sent ones, the apostles. We would do well if we listened to the Lord as he calls us simply to wait for him, to follow where he is leading day by day. We would do well to walk in obedience despite our impatience, despite our fears, despite our distractions. We would do well to realize that all of our treasures have been given to us for the worship and service of the Lord. Not just our gold and silver, but our most prized possessions, our everyday things, our useful things, our time and our talents and our energies. All these he calls us to pour out lavishly for worship in his sanctuary. He calls us to actively and enthusiastically give as our hearts prompt us, but not only to the kinds of special projects that to us seem useful or helpful. It's true that all of life can be worship, and in all of life we are called to be generous. But giving to the Lord means giving to institutions that he ordained in Scripture to provide the primary means for his worship. The tabernacle, then the temple, and now the church. To give, to facilitate the gathering of his people for the purposes, as we said earlier, of prayer, of singing, and of hearing his word preached. When we stop giving to the general work of the church and to give only to projects that excite us, we are in danger of worshiping an idol, one made in our own image. We are called to spend ourselves day by day and week by week in the worship and service of God together with his people. We would do well for each of us to rededicate ourselves to caring for this physical space where we gather. As fragile tents who need care ourselves, as those who need spaces to shelter in, as those who need to be provoked to awe, to remind us that true worship is something that takes us out of ourselves, that draws our gaze beyond the material. We would do well if each of us spent ourselves and our resources in loving Bethesda's bricks and beams, her walls and windows. We would do well if each of us put the upkeep of the beautiful place that God has given to us to tabernacle together and to worship together before the maintenance of our own houses. And while a church building is neither the tabernacle or the temple, the demands that God makes of his people to give lavishly to a tent should certainly prod us and you may remember that Haggai explicitly calls the people out for their tendency to put their own houses 
before God's house. All the prophets speak of the inadequacy of our dedication to the true worship of God together, of giving God our leftovers instead of our best. Now, please understand, I'm not talking about showing off. I'm not talking about fancy things. I'm not talking about dressing ourselves up to impress. The scriptures are perfectly plain about the dangers of turning the spaces in which we worship into false gods. Nevertheless, it's also quite clear that what we take care of in this life is a strong indication where the priorities of our heart lie. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And for most of us, our treasure is our house, both literally and figuratively. We care for our dwellings, our renos, our roofs, our water heaters, and our kids, in the more figurative sense of the word of house, our kids, our families, our husbands and wives, our extended families, our schedules, far better than we care for the place where we gather for worship. Now, I do want to point out there are a handful of people who care for our building, and at the risk of embarrassing them and forgetting others that I should mention, I want to honor some of them by mentioning them and commending them. Of course, we all know that Cambys is here day in and day out, lovingly cleaning this building, polishing it, addressing its most urgent needs. Suzanne and Ruth and Kate likewise do much that reflects their devotion not only to our church, but to the one who gave us this space in which we meet, consecrated for his worship. But how about the rest of us? We would do well to remember that how well we care for our church building can be a reflection of how well we care for the one who gave it, how well we care for one another, because it's the space that we have set aside to come together to worship him. But what physical space has God now set aside to dwell in himself? In other other words, where is the holy place? Where is the holy of holies? Where is that windowless room that opens onto eternity? It's no longer a tent made of gold and silver and bronze, of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen, framed in acacia wood and smelling of sweet spices. God now makes his home in us. Jesus, the word, became flesh and tabernacled among us. But once he died, rose, and ascended into heaven, his spirit came to live not just among us, but literally inside us. Intense made of skin and bones and spirit in those who have been made holy by faith in Jesus and cleansed by the atoning blood of his sacrifice. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I am heaven's tent. And you are too. Made in the image of God, but being remade exactly like the pattern that Moses was shown on the mountain. We 
individually are heaven's tents, tabernacles of God, the physical space where his spirit chooses to dwell on earth. And these perishable bodies must one day, as Paul says, put on the imperishable. These mortal bodies put on immortality. But that's also getting into next week, so I'm not going to go farther in that direction. But that is the main point, the central truth. The Lord, in his goodness and in his purposes for the redemption and restoration of his fallen creation, makes you, your tent, you, a tabernacle, makes you part of his story. He knows your name, and he eagerly makes himself known to you, that you may make him known abroad. He takes your frail, broken body that daily mars his image, and according to the justice and mercy he displayed on the cross, he recommissions it as holy. You are set apart, a holy center of worship in the midst of rebellion and pain. You are his pavilion, a holy center of command to carry out his will in obedience. You are a witness to his light when all around is dark, just like the picture on the front of your bulletin. We each have a story, a story that's different from the tabernacle, from the temple, but it's a story of how God is living in us, a story of God, how God is directing us, a story of how God goes with us. Tactile, we are present to the world. We touch and are touched. We see and are seen. Mobile, we go where no one else will, into the wilderness to seek, to save those who are lost. Fragile, we accept and even embrace the fact that we will suffer as Christ did. Do you believe that God is at work even right this minute in our worship gathering that seems so unimpressive in the eyes of the world and maybe even in the eyes of many other believers? He is here, and he is working, especially now, especially in this context, as he always has, in the praises and prayers of his people, and in the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Lord, there are weeks when we are keenly aware of our, the fact that we are not worthy to serve you. And Lord, that was me this week. That is me this morning. 
And yet, I cling to the hope of eternity, that I am being remade, remained according to the pattern of heaven, according to the image of your son who tabernacled among us. And Lord, we long for the day when you will clothe us with the imperishable, clothe us with immortality. Bring us back in a week, Lord, to learn more about what that means. And sustain us, dwell in us, guide us. Help us to be a holy center of worship every moment of the day in prayer and singing, in our thoughts. Help us to take every thought captive to you as we move about day by day. Help us to be a holy center of command that is listening for where you would direct us, how you would ask us to go, who you want us to talk to. And help us to walk in confidence, not in ourselves, but trusting that you are indeed at work, you are indeed dwelling inside us, and it is not a common place. It is not something that we can ever take for granted, even though it is something that we have assured, we are assured of, and we have security about. Yet it is the most awesome truth that we could possibly ever contemplate. So we ask for your help in making us, commissioning us, commissioning, recommissioning our frail bodies as your dwelling place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Paul in Second Corinthians, starting at the end of chapter 4. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, that, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. You can bet on that. Amen and amen. Go in God's grace.